You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right, uh, go ahead and open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 31 through 37 this evening. That's Mark 7, verses 31 through 37. Uh, obviously, we are continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark, uh, and tonight we come to the account of Jesus healing a deaf man. Uh, and just a little heads up, we're using my phone tonight to uh, do the Facebook Live thing, which means I don't have a timer up here, okay? So buckle up. Um, all right, now obviously, as I said, this is a miracle text. Um, Jesus uh, miraculously and instantaneously heals a man in our passage this evening who was deaf, And Mark is going to tell us has a severe speech impediment that accompanied his deafness. Uh, But this miracle is a bit unique. It's found only in Mark's gospel. I think it's one of three, I believe, three accounts that are unique to Mark. Usually, Matthew and Luke repeat almost everything that happens in the gospel of Mark, but not this event. Uh, And also, when performing this miracle, the Lord Jesus does some things that seem very strange at first glance. Things that he doesn't normally do uh, when he does miracles. Uh, So that'll be a little bit of a unique thing for us this evening. Uh, But we are going to learn uh, from a miracle of the Lord Jesus this evening, and you know what that means, like I do with every other miracle so far. I'm going to tell you the significance of miracles yet again. And if it's getting repetitious, uh, good, right? Because you need to remember this. Uh, In the New Testament, miracles are properly called signs and wonders, and this is no different in our text this evening. And miracles are signs that point to something about Jesus and, and why he came to earth. They're, they're signs, and we all know that signs point to a greater reality than themselves. Again, the sign that says Portsmouth, Portsmouth 20 miles away points to Portsmouth, not to itself, something greater than the sign itself. Now, we definitely believe that the miracles we read about in Scripture uh, actually happened. Okay, we're not trying to spiritualize them away. Uh, the miracles in Scripture were real, literal, historical accounts But while acknowledging, teaching, and believing that, we also want to look for spiritual significance um, in in the miracles of Scripture beyond the bare fact that a miracle had taken place. Okay, so the miracles testify always to who Jesus is and, and why he came, right? Some aspect of the Lord Jesus Christ is always shown in his miracles, right? Or to put it this way, and this may help you, uh, hermeneutics are principles by which we interpret the Scriptures, And our hermeneutic that we operate from as Reformed people is that the whole Bible is about Jesus and that the whole Bible is about the work of redemption through Jesus Christ. So that's the lens through which we read all of Scripture, including the accounts of Christ's miracles. Okay? So all of Christ's miracles preach the gospel and proclaim Jesus in some way. And we can't lose that because if we lose that, we lose the miracles themselves. Right? The miracles always preach the gospel because... Every major theme of Scripture preaches the gospel. But in our passage this evening, in this miracle, we're going to see something simple and yet beautiful. And it's this. We're going to see that Jesus is the curse reverser. Or you could put it this way. Jesus is the restorer of fallen mankind. And so this evening, I hope to show you the compassion and beauty and power of our Lord Jesus in his ability and his willingness to restore sinners back to what they should have been all along. 
All right, so with that said, if you would, as a sign of respect to our God, if you are able, please stand with me for the reading of his inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37. Then he, Jesus, returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Gracious God, give us humble teachable and obedient hearts that we may receive what you have revealed and do what you have commanded. God, please help us this evening to hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest your word so that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask for this in his name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so our text begins in verse 31, and Mark tells us there that Jesus, uh, we t- he tells us of Jesus' continued time in Gentile territory. Uh, you'll remember from last week that Jesus had departed from Galilee and had decided to go into the region of Tyre and Sidon, and that's where he met the Syrophoenician woman who had the demon-possessed daughter. Okay, so Jesus is deep in Gentile land. He's not in Israel anymore. And in verse 31, we learn that Jesus goes to the region of the Decapolis. Now, if you remember back... In January, we looked at Mark chapter 5, and Jesus has already been in the Decapolis, right? That's where he healed the demoniac. So Jesus has been here before. This is a Gentile region. But what's weird about verse 31 is that Mark tells us that Jesus takes a really, really, really long route to to the Decapolis. Um, It's like 120 miles on foot, right? This is the scenic route of scenic routes. Uh, if If you look at a map and compare Mark's description, uh, you'll see that Jesus' chosen route doesn't make much sense if he was trying to be efficient. Uh, A much shorter route could have been taken that would have gotten there quicker. Um, But it seems that Jesus intentionally stays in and travels in and goes deep into Gentile country. Uh, Now, a quick thing, I just wanted to address this. Um, Why? Why would Jesus do that? Well, like last week, I think that Jesus taking this strange route is meant to indicate his willingness to associate with the Gentiles, right? As, as, we, look, as we learned last week, um, Jesus' desire, Jesus' mission is to save the world. And when I say world, I mean both Jew and Gentile, not just Jews, okay? So this is a major theme of this section of Scripture, Mark chapter 7, and that theme is that salvation is for the world and not just ethnic Israel. So it stands to reason that Jesus may have been making that point to his disciples by walking them 120-plus miles through Gentile territory, as if he's saying, hey, get used to being around the Gentiles because that's what you're going to be doing when I'm gone, <laughs> right? So again, the gospel is for the world. I think that might be why Jesus takes such a strange route. But then we come to verse 32, and we come really to the, to the issue of the text itself. And that issue is a man and his handicap. So let's read verse 32 again. 
And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged Jesus to lay his hand on him. Now, this is a really sad condition that this man is in. It's probably worse than most of us realize. Right? This man is, this man is deaf. Now, often we think that being blind would be one of the worst handicaps that we could have, right? That, that tends to be what we think, right? That being blind would be worse than being deaf, but I don't believe that that's true. And I say that because blind people can still communicate with everybody. Blind people can still communicate. They can still speak. They can still hear you uh, when you talk to them. But deaf people, if they're truly deaf, they can't hear anybody. Right? They, can't, they can't really communicate with hardly anybody. And again, I'm, I'm taking this in a first century context. God has been gracious to us to allow cochlear implants and things like that today in modern sign language where deaf people can communicate. Right? So praise the Lord for that. But back in first century Israel, or rather first century Palestinian region, deaf people couldn't hardly communicate with anybody on any level of depth, depth at all. Being deaf, they couldn't hear. And if they were deaf from birth, they couldn't speak at all. Why is that? Because you learn to speak by hearing. Right? So a deaf person often was, for all intents and purpose, purposes, mute as well as deaf if they were deaf from birth. And again, there was no standardized sign language back then, so deaf people couldn't even communicate with each other. Put on top of that, it was rare for someone back then to be able to read or write. So they couldn't even write down what they wanted to say because literacy was so rare. So the deaf person in the first century essentially lived in isolation their entire life. Imagine that. Only being able to communicate the most absolute basic things to your family. Not being able to communicate anything of depth at all to anyone. Complete social isolation because human communication was basically impossible. That's sad. That's sincerely sad, and I think maybe we, gl- we, 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 we skip over that whenever we hear that a man was deaf. This man was isolated. But that's sad in and of itself, but what's worse is that many people back then would actually put the deaf in the same category as the insane and mentally handicapped. That was a pretty common thing that would happen. And they would do that because since the deaf person couldn't communicate, they had no way of knowing how mentally competent that the deaf person was. So they would assume that the deaf person was not very mentally competent. Not only that, but many of the people of that day, especially in Israel, assumed that handicaps were a sign of anger or punishment from God. Right? Like the blind man we see in the Gospels, the disi- or I think it was the disciples or the Pharisees, I think, said, who committed sin that he's blind, him or his parents? Right? So having a, a handicap was viewed often as a sign of divine displeasure. And so, deaf people were considered unclean by many. They were considered accursed by God. And just so you know, it's generally not a good idea to hang out with people who God hates. So you stay away from those people. You don't associate with those people. So you can see then that this man was truly afflicted. It wasn't just that he couldn't hear. This man suffered many ways because of his deafness. And he was cut off from society and human interaction for the most part. It's sad. This man's truly, truly in anguish. But now something interesting in Mark's description of this man is that he had a speech impediment, which means he could speak some, right? With great difficulty, he could speak a little. And, and this means that this man probably wasn't born deaf, but at some point in his life, for some reason, had lost his hearing. He was severely disabled in speech, basically mute, 
But with much effort, maybe he could be understood a little, but still not really. Again, a severe speech impediment is what's in mind here. But they brought this man to Jesus, Mark says in verse 32. They are probably a reference to this man's friends. And again, the fact that he has friends that are close enough to him to bring him to Jesus makes me think he was not born deaf. And they begged Jesus to lay his hands on him. They brought this man to Jesus so that Jesus could heal him, so that Jesus could have mercy on him. And remember, Jesus, again, had been in the Decapolis before, the region of the Decapolis before. So I'm sure miracles about him, or rather word about him being able to do miracles had spread throughout the region. And so these friends bring their deaf friend. This man needs help. He needs mercy. He is in anguish. He is isolated. He is cut off. He needs a miracle, but the Lord Jesus has a reputation for being able to do the impossible. And so they come. And as the text will show us, Jesus agrees to have mercy on this man. Now, I want to I pause here for a moment because I think that there is a lesson for us to see already from verse 32. These were good friends, right? These were good friends. Permit me to say this. I, I say they're good friends because they brought this man to Jesus. Now, they saw that, again, they saw their friend was suffering. They saw that he had a need, that he needed mercy, divine mercy, and so they brought him to the one who could heal him. Now, I'm not saying that these men were necessarily believers. They probably weren't. They had probably just heard of a miracle worker called Jesus, and so they brought their friend to the miracle worker. But regardless of their spiritual state, there is a lesson for us to see from these men, and it's this. The best, most kind, most compassionate thing that we can do for someone that we love is to bring them to Jesus. I'm serious. The best thing that we can do is to bring someone to Jesus. And I believe that we can do this primarily in two ways. So I just want to put this in your ear by way of reminder because this is simple and you already know this. But first, we can bring people to Jesus by proclaiming Jesus to them. By declaring the message of the cross. That they're sinners. That they need forgiveness. But then telling them of Jesus who has put away the sins of all who will believe on him. We can tell them how Jesus willingly laid down his life and suffered God's wrath as the substitute for sinners in their place. We can declare to people that the forgiveness of sins comes not by human works or human merit, but by faith alone in Christ Jesus alone. We can bring someone to Jesus by leading them to faith in Christ. So you can put it this way. We can bring people to Jesus, in a sense, by bringing Jesus to them. Don't forget that, please. These were good friends. Be a good friend. Bring people to Jesus. But second, we can bring people to Jesus through prayer. And you already know this. We can approach the throne of grace with their names on our lips, appealing to God to have mercy upon them and grant them salvation through Jesus Christ. We can pray for the needs of our neighbors and family members, whatever the need may be asking the Lord Jesus to bless them and to lay his hand on them, as it were, and keep them through their trials and, and sustain them. We can spiritually bring people to Christ while we are on our knees daily. Remember that, please. But let me speak to parents for a second because I am a new one and these things are on my mind. Are you bringing your children to Christ? You may say, what does this have to do with the text? You get, I, let me have this for a moment. These people brought their friend to Jesus. I must ask you, are you bringing your children to Christ? Are you bringing your little ones to him? 
I pray that you are. I don't live with you. I hope that you are. This is your chief duty as a parent. This is the mission of your home, to raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Christian parent, I beg you that you would actually love your children enough to bring them to Christ, to tell them the gospel, to tell them as small as they are that they are sinners and they were born in Adam and they need to be put in Christ by faith or they will perish. Love them enough to tell them. Love your children enough to read the word of God to them in your home to make them sit down and listen to the word of God because they're not going to want to do it. Love your children enough to make them come to church, make them listen as much as they're able and to discuss what was preached with them. And pray for them. Pray with them. Pray for their conversion that it will happen when they're little. Pray for your babies. Pray for them. Parents, I beg that you wouldn't neglect this. Because hear me, just because you have come to Christ does not mean that your children have. And just because you're a Christian does not mean that your children were born Christians. They need converted just like you did. So you must take them to Christ. Like these men did their friend in our text. But back to our passage, verse 33. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he, Jesus, put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. So Jesus chooses to be merciful to this deaf and mute man who was brought to him. He decides to heal him, but he does it in a very peculiar way. First, and we're going to hang out here for a while, Jesus takes the man aside from the crowd. He, he takes the man away and goes somewhere private. The disciples could probably still see. Again, you'll remember Mark's gospel is Peter's retelling of what happened. The disciple Peter, the apostle Peter's retelling of, of the, the life and ministry of Jesus. So the disciples could probably still see what was going on. But Jesus wanted this to be an intimate moment between him and this deaf man. Jesus didn't want it to be a spectacle. He knew that this man had been mocked and he had been... I'm sure eyeballed his entire life, so Jesus takes him off to the side. This man has suffered enough. Not only that, but this was not a magic trick for people to watch and be entertained. Jesus was about to change this man's life. But Christ takes him aside, and he comes face to face with the man. And this was probably a rare event for this deaf man, because not many people would have ever taken much notice of him. Not to help him, anyway. Not many people actually cared about this man, I'm sure, aside from his few friends. Most would have considered him cursed by God again. And most would have considered him a burden and an inconvenience on society, but not Jesus. Don't you praise God for that? That our Lord Jesus does not think about people in categories like that. He does not view weak sinners, needy sinners who come to him as burdens. He doesn't view them that way. Jesus looked at this man and he saw not just another face in the crowd, but he saw a person, an individual who needs mercy from God. So Jesus shows mercy to him. By removing him from the crowd, Jesus shows that this man is not just a problem to be solved. He's not an annoyance. He's not a burden. Rather, he is a unique individual that Jesus Christ has pity on. He's not just some deaf guy. He's someone that Jesus created who has come to him for mercy. And so Jesus shows him love individually. I want you to see that. Individually, one-on-one, -on -one, he takes this man aside from the crowd. And I want you to see here how kind our Lord is. He loves him as an individual. 
He takes time out for just this one man. He uses special care with this one. And in light of that, Christian, I want you to know this. Because I, I, I've talked to people who, who feel this way. I, I remember hearing a, a new convert who said, I know Jesus loves the church, but does Jesus love me? I want you to know this. He doesn't just love his church as a corporate group. He loves each one of his people individually as well as a whole. Each one of you, Christians, individually. He has mercy upon us individually as well as as a whole. Christian, he loves you. Jesus loves you. Let that sink in for a moment. The Almighty Son of God loves you. As despicable as you are, as sinful as you are, as weak and needy as you are, he loves you. As spiritually handicapped as you may be, Jesus loves you. Sometimes I think that we may, and maybe you're doing this in your own mind right now, right? You're kind of rolling your eyes, scoffing at that sentence because it seems too juvenile, or if you're like me, it's too mainstream evangelical. Jesus loves you. But God help us if we think that way. Because Christian, the fact that you can say Jesus loves me is one of the most blessed truths that could ever come out of your mouth. That he loves you. It's not something to be glossed over. What a savior. He loves you as an individual. He loves each one of us. And Christian, I want you to see this as well. In taking this man off to the side and not treating him as a burden, not dismissing him and telling him to go away because he's getting on his nerves. Jesus doesn't treat him like that. And I want you to see this, Christian. You're not a problem to Jesus. You may be a problem to a great many people in your life. I don't know. But you're not a problem to him. You're not a burden to him. I hear people say that. I feel like a burden to everybody. I don't know. Some of that may be true. We can be burdensome to one another. Let's be honest. We really can. But not to Jesus. Not to Jesus. The deaf man wasn't a burden to Christ and neither are you. I think so often we get this idea that because we fail and because we sin so much that Jesus tolerates us. I mean, seriously, like, have you ever felt that way? That you're just tolerated by Jesus? Because how does he, why would he put up with me? Surely he's only putting up with me. That's not true. He loves you. And love knows no burden. Love carries the weak. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love is patient. Love is kind. And Jesus loves you. He loves you. The compassion that Jesus had for this man is a mirror and shadow of the love that Jesus has for each one of his people individually. I want you to know that, Christian. So I'll say it over and over again because we need to hear it. Jesus loves you, and you're not a burden to him. We need to hear this, especially as Reformed people who have such a high, transcendent view of God, right? Jesus actually loves you. You need to hear that. You need to know that. This will make you uncomfortable. Jesus desires you. Some of you maybe squirmed because I said that. I'm not saying he desires you because you're desirable, because you're not. But what a savior that he desires those who are undesirable. That's part of the reason that he came. Because he desired to save the undesirable. Because he desired the undesirable to be with him. How amazing. 
This is Jesus. And there's none like him. His compassion towards sinners is unfathomable. But Jesus takes this man aside from the crowd. And then he does something that seems strange to us. He sticks his fingers in the man's ears. And then he spits on his own fingers and touches the man's tongue with the spit. It's okay to say that that's weird because we're 21st century Americans, right? That seems very strange to us. I'm not saying it is weird. I'm saying it seems weird to us. But I want you to know two things before we go any further. One, this was not Jesus trying to do some ancient form of weird medicine or some ancient superstitious ritual. Jesus doesn't do medicine, and he doesn't do superstition. He is not a doctor, and he's not a pagan. All right, so write that down. Jesus is not a pagan. There's your lesson for the day. All right, he is the son of God who has divine power to heal. So this is not medicine. This is not superstition. Second, these actions of Jesus did not accomplish the healing. Right, you remember last week with the Syrophoenician woman? The demon-possessed daughter was, I don't know where, but she wasn't there on the scene with Jesus. And Jesus tells the woman, go home, your daughter is well. And the woman went home and her daughter was well. Jesus doesn't need to touch anybody. He doesn't even need anyone to be in his immediate presence in order to perform a miracle. So he didn't need to touch this man. He didn't need to do these strange things. These actions merely accompanied the healing of this man. And I think these actions are twofold, personally. First, and again, I'm, I'm saying this over and over again, the compassion of Jesus is shown in these actions. Jesus is touching this man. He's touching him. He is, in touching him, he's identifying with this man and his handicaps. He touches his mouth and he touches his ears. The things that are diseased, you could say. The things that are handicapped, that aren't working properly. He's identifying with him. Jesus is getting up close and personal with this man and his defects. And as I said earlier, this man would have been, been considered unclean and accursed by God. That's how most, most of the Jews would have thought about it. Maybe even some of the Gentiles. And because of that, he would have been considered what? Untouchable. But Jesus touches the cursed and unclean all the time, doesn't he? He touches the demon-possessed. touches the blind. touches the leper. He touches the unclean all the time. And what, what happens when he does? It's every time as if Jesus transfers his cleanliness and his blessedness to those who are unclean and accursed. There's a foreshadowing of the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us whenever we believe. When we believe upon Christ, he lays his hand upon us and he puts his cleanliness in us that we might be judged by God and found pure in his sight. But I believe this is a sign of compassion. Jesus is touching the untouchable. But not only was this a sign of compassion, this is probably also very practical. A very practical thing. This man is deaf and can't communicate. So Jesus is indicating to this deaf man who can't hear Jesus speak what Jesus intends to do for him. By putting his fingers into the man's ears and touching his tongue, Jesus is signaling to the man, I'm going to restore your hearing and your speech. And the use of spit from Jesus' own mouth may have indicated something like, this is the one that people kind of don't know, but it may have indicated something like, with my mouth, I'm going to open your mouth. Right? Just as God speaks and things happen in the Bible. With my mouth, I'm going to open your mouth. But this would have all communicated to the man what was about to happen, as well as invited the deaf man to believe that Jesus could do the miracle. But then Mark tells us that Jesus looked up to heaven. 
And looking up to heaven indicates the divine dimension of Jesus' power to heal. He's telling this deaf man, again, communicating with him through signs, that he's exercising power from heaven. That he's going to heal this man by the power of Almighty God. So this is not a magic trick. This is not a pagan thing. This is the living God who's going to heal this man. This is divine healing. And Jesus is the one who communicates divine healing and power. So his power is on display as the Almighty Son of God. And then in verse 34, Mark says that Jesus sighed. And me and Pastor Stephen talked about this. That detail may be the most beautiful detail of this passage. Because it reveals to us, I think, a lot about our Lord. And again, his compassion. I see Jesus' compassion all over the place in this narrative. Jesus sighs. Now, he doesn't sigh out of irritation or exasperation with this man. This man has done nothing to warrant anything like that. It wasn't a sigh of tiredness. It wasn't a sigh that said, I don't know if I can heal this one. Right now you do before you have to do some work and you're not sure. <sighs> All right, I'm going to get it. No, it wasn't that kind of a sigh. Rather, I believe it was a sigh of grief. A sigh of compassionate grief toward this man. In his human nature, the Lord Jesus is grieved at the results of sin. It's because of sin being part of a fallen world that this man is suffering the way that he is. And Jesus knows that this is not how things were from the beginning. As Jesus looks upon this man, his heart is overflowing with compassion and pity and grief for this man. He, he knows that if it were not for sin, that this man would not be suffering. So it's as if Jesus' heart goes out to this man. You've seen it, right? Scrolling through Facebook, the picture of a child hooked up to a ventilator or something. <sighs> and you sigh because it hurts. And your heart goes out to the child. But when Jesus is grieved, he gets provoked. And when Jesus is provoked, more often than not, it is to compassion and mercy and not anger. And so Jesus is going to restore what is broken in this man. And Jesus speaks a word, an Arabic word, ephatha. Arabic meaning is Jesus' native tongue. And he says, be opened. So Jesus commands the deaf man's ears to open up and listen. And he commands the man's mouth to open up and allow him to speak. And with a word, the man immediately begins to hear and speak. Verse 35 says, his ears were open, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. I love this because when the almighty son of God speaks, all of nature must bow its knees and submit to the living word of God. That's beautiful. The son of God speaks. And all of creation must obey. This is the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. He speaks and the deaf hear. He speaks and the mute responds. This personally reminds me of Exodus chapter 4. Remember whenever Moses in verses 10 and 11 of Exodus 4, Moses is arguing with the Lord, never a good idea. He's arguing with God saying, I, I can't speak. I can't speak for you. I'm not, I'm not good with that. I'm not a good orator. And what does God say? Who makes the deaf to hear? Or rather, who makes man deaf or man mute or man blind, or man seeing. Is it not I, Yahweh? What does God say? I'm the one who determines whether or not someone is deaf or they can hear. I'm the one who determines whether or not someone can speak or whether they're mute. I'm the one who determines whether or not you're blind or seeing. So Jesus is showing here that this is the power of God himself that he's wielding. And he's wielding it as if it's his own because it is his own. Because Jesus is God incarnate. And when God speaks, when the Son of God speaks, creation must obey. 
because he is God over it all. This is Jesus. This is his power and his compassion at work. So this man is healed. But then an ugly thing happens. Verses 36 and 37. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So Jesus commands those who witness the effects of this miracle to be quiet. Don't tell anyone. Be silent. Jesus does this a lot, right? Why would he do this? Why does he tell everyone not to publish his miracles? I think it's because they don't really understand who Jesus is. They don't have a fully formed understanding of who he is or why he has come or why he does miracles. Right? They don't understand that he is the Messiah who's come to save his people. And a full understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done and what he's come into the world to do is not going to be possible until after he's crucified, died, and raised from the dead. That's why he commands people so often to be quiet during his earthly ministry. He doesn't want a half-truth proclamation about himself to go out, so he tells everyone to be silent. You see, Jesus is much more than a miracle worker, isn't he? He's much more than that. The, the fact that he did miracles is only a small part of his work, but the Gentiles, like the Jews, missed this truth about Jesus. To believe that Jesus is only a miracle worker is inaccurate knowledge. Please hear me. This is good for us to remember. The whole Christ must be proclaimed or a false Christ is being proclaimed. The truth is that he's the son of God who's come to serve and save his people from their sins. And because so few people during his earthly ministry actually grasp that truth, Jesus allows very few people to proclaim him during his earthly ministry. So he tells them, shut up. <laughs> Don't tell anybody. And, and I, I believe the original language is saying he kept telling them, stop. Don't say anything. But the more he told them over and over, the more zealously they disobeyed the explicit command of Jesus. They didn't understand that it was the incarnate God standing before them, or I think they would have shut their mouths. But most of them didn't believe. Now, sometimes you'll read commentaries or you hear preachers almost make jokes about this as if it's cute. that they Well, they just couldn't help it. They were just so amazed by what had happened. No, this is sin. They were disobeying the direct commandment of the Son of God. It's not cute. It's not excusable. They just sinned against the Jesus that they just witnessed such a gracious display of mercy from. Quick note here. Far be it from us to be like this crowd. For those of us who have witnessed the mercy of Christ, for those of us who have experienced the mercy of Christ, that we would then turn around and disobey the Son of God. Far be it from us to be like this crowd. This is a despicable thing that they did, and it's ugly. But the crowd was stunned, Mark says. They had never seen anything like this. They were out of their minds. They were beside themselves with amazement. And the Gentiles, in their astonishment, they confessed that Jesus did all things well. His works were perfect. They were perfectly good, perfectly merciful, perfectly powerful. I read a commentator that said this, just as the Father's work in Genesis, his work of creation was perfect, right? It is good, and it was good, and it was good. So also the Son's work of redemption is perfect. He does all things well. He leaves nothing undone. But having now walked through the text, I, I want to direct your attention uh, to what I believe 
is one of the, the major things that we learn about our Lord Jesus in this text. I, I want us now to consider what this miracle, what this sign points us to about the Lord Jesus and his work, right? So we've, we've seen his power on display. We've seen the compassion that he had toward this man. Now let's see the spiritual significance of this miracle. And here's what I believe that it is. Among other things, because I could have went a few different routes. But I believe that this miracle teaches us that Jesus has come to restore fallen mankind. That he's come to restore sinners back to what they should be. That he's come to save his people and reverse the curse of sin. Now hear me out if that sounds crazy to you. All sickness and handicaps, along with everything that's unpleasant, whether big or small, is a result of sin, is it not? Everything unpleasant in the world, including handicaps. They are part of the curse of God because of sin. God placed a curse upon the world and humanity after Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden. It's Genesis 3. And now, because of our sin, God has cursed us, and now life is hard and full of pain and death. And it's meant to be a constant reminder of our sin and our separation from God because of our sins and our need to be restored to communion with God through a Redeemer. The difficulties and hardships of life are part of the curse placed on fallen mankind because of sin. And that includes this deaf and mute man's handicaps. They are the result of sin. Jesus knows that. right? When I say they're the result of sin, I don't mean necessarily that this man personally sinned and then God struck him deaf and mute. Uh, that's not what I'm saying, but I mean the general effects of sin. Just living in a fallen world. And so Jesus was grieved. Remember verse 34, he sighed. He's grieved at the effects of sin. So he decides to restore this man. So here's what Jesus did in this miracle. He reversed the external physical effects of the curse of sin for this man. He allowed this man to hear and speak once more. And the physical restoration of this man's body points us to the greater reality and truth that Jesus has come to restore his people spiritually. He's come to give us a true relationship with God by accomplishing the forgiveness of our sins. And he's come to reverse the curse of sin on us and give us back the faculties that we once had in the Garden of Eden. This miracle is a picture and shadow. It's a microcosm of why Christ came. He came to restore fallen man to what man once was. In the beginning, in Eden, God created mankind to be in full communion with himself, with God. Right? Originally, there was no sin. And because there was no sin, there was no alienation from God. There was no sickness. And there were no handicaps. There was no death. Everything was perfect. Man dwelt in the immediate presence of God and had peace with God. And man was never to die and never to see sickness and never meant to experience an ounce of separation from God. And man was designed to praise God and worship Him always and to reflect to the world what God is like, to bear the image of God rightly. But then what happened? You know the story. Man sinned. Our first parents sinned, namely Adam sinned. And his guilt's imputed to us. And because of Adam's sin, the whole human race was utterly ruined. Our relationship with God was severed because God will not have fellowship with sin. And the image of God within us was shattered and everything was undone. Don't underestimate how severely the fall affected us. What you see around you is not normal. It's not. Doesn't your heart tell you that? You see sickness? 
Things aren't supposed to be this way. You see the ugliness of sin, and you know things were not meant to be this way. The fall of man in the garden ruined us. Because of our sin, we came under the divine displeasure and wrath of the God who made us. And everything that we were was broken. We fell, and we fell hard. So hard now that we are born into a state naturally where we cannot worship the God who made us. We cannot properly image forth who God is. Because of our sin, we're broken and we're alienated from God and unable to enter into his presence. We're shattered and ruined and sick and liable to the wrath and judgment of God. But Jesus came into the world to reverse that. To reverse it. He came into the world to redeem man and restore us in himself to what we should have been all along. That's why he came. This is the centerpiece of all of his work, to redeem. That's why we call him the Redeemer. Let me give you some examples. Jesus restored us, he redeemed us to a right relationship with God through his cross. By taking our sins upon himself and paying for them in our place, by suffering God's wrath, what did he do? He wiped our slate clean, not to mention he imputed his righteousness to us by faith. But our sins have been taken away. And now what? We have a clean conscience before God, like man did in Eden. We are now righteous in God's sight, like man was in Eden, perfect in his sight. In perfect communion with God like we were in the beginning. At peace with God through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ who has accomplished the forgiveness of our sins. In other words, through Christ's death and through his death we have been restored to a right standing with God. By his grace, second thing, by his grace and regeneration, Christ restores our spiritual hearing like this deaf man. So that we can now hear the word of God and actually respond in faith and obedience Our deafness is removed, and we can now hear the voice of God calling us and directing us. So our spiritual hearing has been restored. A third thing, by his grace, Christ has restored our speech so that we can declare the goodness and glory of God. Because of our sin and bondage to sin, we were unable to praise God. Right? We were unable to praise him and worship him as we were created to do in the beginning. You could say that our mouths were tied up by sin and enmity with God. But Christ, by grace, has restored us and opened our mouths to be able to praise God in sincerity and speak his truth once again as we were designed to do. And the last example I have is even in his resurrection, Jesus restores us. Because in his resurrection, what are you promised? Your own bodily resurrection to perfect imperishable, restored bodies. So not only are our souls saved and our communion with God is restored and our ears are opened and our mouths are opened, but our bodies will be restored too. Our bodies will be immortal as God intended us to be in the beginning. We'll never be sick again. There will be no handicaps in the resurrection. There will be no death. The curse will be over for the people of God. Christ will restore our bodies to what they should have been. So we see in this account of healing that Jesus restores his people. And as I always want to point out, he does it by grace alone. This man didn't earn or merit this restoration from Christ, did he? What did he do for Jesus? Nothing. He came. He came to Jesus. And Jesus had mercy upon him. This man was even a Gentile as far as we can tell. But it didn't matter. Because Jesus is merciful to those who come to him. This man wasn't restored because he deserved it. 
but rather he was restored because Christ is a gracious redeemer to those who come. And that's how he restores us. We come to him with no merit. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And he redeems us and restores us like he did this man. And hear me out. If all of this sounds like I'm stretching the meaning of this miracle, let me show you something very important that, that guided my entire interpretation of this text. The specific Greek word for death in verse 32, the specific word that Mark uses is unique to Mark. No one else uses it. And it's used only one other place in the Bible. It's not in the New Testament either. It's in the Old Testament, the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was what the early church used as a Bible. Anytime you read an Old Testament quotation in the New Testament, they're not quoting from the Hebrew, they're quoting from the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. And in that Greek Old Testament, we see this exact same word for death that we see in Mark 7.32. We see it in one place in the Septuagint. That's in Isaiah chapter 35. This is not a coincidence, I might add. Mark was inspired by God to record this in the exact words that he recorded it in. We believe in the plenary inspiration of the scriptures. Every single word was inspired by God. So this wording is too unique and specific to be a coincidence. Mark is alluding to the Isaiah passage when he chooses this wording. And here we go. In Isaiah chapter 35, God is promising restoration and salvation to his people. And here's what he says in verses 4 through 6. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Isaiah prophesied that God himself would come and save his people, that God would come and do it. And when God comes to save his people, Isaiah says the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame will leap and the mute will sing. And what do we read at the closing of our passage? Verse 37, he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Just like Isaiah said would happen whenever Yahweh comes to redeem his people. Jesus is showing us in this miracle, and Mark is pointing out in his inspired wording in our text that Jesus is God incarnate who's come to save his people. That Jesus is truly God and he's come to restore his people to fellowship with God and save them from the curse of sin. That God has come in Jesus Christ to reverse the effects of the fall. Brothers and sisters, Christ has reversed the curse. The curse of God's wrath has been taken away because it was laid upon Christ and his cross. The curse of our slavery to sin has been taken away and we're now free to know and obey God. The curse of our alienation from God has been taken away and we've been brought near to God and made his children through Christ. The curse of our spiritual deafness to God has been reversed and we've been given ears to hear and a heart to respond in faith. The curse of our spiritual muteness has been reversed and we can now praise God and proclaim the lordship of Christ and proclaim God's mercy and worship him from the heart. Jesus, the restorer, and redeemer of sinners has accomplished our salvation and made us whole. I believe that is what we're intended to see in this passage. God has come, and God saves his people. 
through Christ. But now moving into application, I have three quick things I want to say to you. Somewhat quick, I'm not going to lie to you. The first is this. Would you believe this one? Would you believe in this Savior? Would you come to him like the deaf man and believe that he can do it? I pray that you would place all of your trust in him. All of your trust in the one who makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. The one who came and bore your sin and guilt in your place on a tree and suffered the wrath of God. Trust that one. Trust Yahweh who has come in the flesh to save his people from their sins. Trust in him. Come to him. He will not turn you away. Christian, keep coming to him and keep trusting in him. I recognize everyone in this room professes faith in Christ. Keep coming to him. Keep trusting in him. He will do it. Keep believing in him. He will save you. He will save you from your sins. Second, we can't imitate the fact that Jesus is the curse reverser, can we? You can't imitate his work. It is unique. You can't imitate the fact that he is the redeemer. But there is something in this text that I implore us all to really think about. Because we can imitate this. And this is something that I think that a lot of us, by your own admissions and my personal conversations with you, and myself included, lack. And that's compassion. In a Facebook age, give me a break, man. We don't have compassion on hardly anybody. But remember our text. Jesus sighed, didn't he? He sighed. He was grieved. It pained Jesus to see the suffering of men. So then Jesus acted in compassion. And treated the deaf man like a human being. He treated him like a human being. And he helped him. Brothers and sisters, I want to put this to you. We go to Jesus first to be restored, right? And then having been restored, we now imitate him. Jesus, through faith in Christ, the shattered image of God that was in us has been restored. So that we can now properly reflect God to the world. We've been restored and we are being more and more daily through the process of sanctification, we're being more and more conformed to the image of Christ, who is the visible image of the invisible God. So as part of the new humanity, the restored humanity, we are to imitate, among other things, the compassion of our Lord. Again, it's very easy for us, and I know this is kind of a trope that Reformed people talk about a lot. We love theology, and stereotypically, we're not good at compassion. Right? Because we can focus on getting our doctrine right so much that, that we don't let it affect our hearts. Right? Like, I could, I could get the exposition of this text right and miss compassion altogether, couldn't I? I could. Or I could say it to you and not apply it in my heart. Let's not be those people. We must have pity on those, or pity and compassion toward the people who are in need, like Jesus did in this text. And when I say need, I don't just mean the poor, I mean any need. People who have a need for friendship. I mean, come on. People are depressed and killing themselves at rates that we've never seen before as a society. People have a need for friendship. A need for companionship. A need for encouragement. We can have compassion on people like Jesus did. We can take them aside, away from the crowd, like Jesus did, and treat them like people and not problems, and actually love them. 
We can do that. We can imitate his love and compassion. You're going to do it imperfectly. You're not Jesus. But nevertheless, you can in some way imitate him in this regard. God's chosen us as the redeemed humanity to communicate to the world what he is like. And we do that by imitating his son who is the express image of God. So have compassion on those around you. And third and finally, we should go out and make known that the Lord Jesus is the redeemer and restorer of men. The crowds in verse 36 were called to be silent, but what did they do? In zeal and amazement, they disobeyed Jesus. They sinned. But to their credit, they wanted to tell people about Jesus. To their credit, they wanted to tell people about Jesus. They didn't proclaim the whole Christ. Surely they only proclaimed his ability to do miracles, but nevertheless, they were zealous to declare what? Jesus can restore men. How much more should we, those who preach a full Christ, who can actually declare his gospel completely and have been commissioned by Christ, how much more should we go tell everybody? They sinned when we do it. We sin when we don't do it. How much more should we be zealous to go out and proclaim Christ to a dying, broken world who needs restored or they will perish? So we are to go out to the spiritually lame, the spiritually blind, the spiritually deaf, and the spiritually mute and declare to them that Jesus can save them, that he can make them whole like he did for us. And why is that? Because he is the great restorer and redeemer of fallen men. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word and how it directs us and, and that your word shows us who the Lord Jesus Christ is. God, I pray that you would help us to continue to trust in him. And if anyone in here is a false convert or not converted at all, God, I pray that you would sh show them, open their heart to believe that the Lord Jesus can make them whole and forgive their sins and restore them to the fellowship with you that mankind had in the garden. And God, I pray for us, your people, that you would help us to be compassionate, that you would help us to actually love our neighbors and treat people like people and not be worldlings in that regard. Help us to show compassion and help us to proclaim the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ because he is worthy and he is the great redeemer. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.